Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm here in Montreal to talk to John D. Meehan, the author of two major diplomatic histories involving two of the greatest superpowers in the world. It is, quite significantly, the 80th anniversary of the outbreak of World War II, in which Canada went to war with Japan. It is also or at least will be shortly, the 50th anniversary of Canada's opening of relations with the People's Republic of China. So it seems an ideal time to talk to John Meehan about his diplomatic histories. John, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be here. Well, one of the most interesting dimensions of this is the fact that there's actually very little history written about Canada's relations with its Asian neighbours, in the sense that uh, you do see a lot of focus on Canada's relations with the United States and Canada's relations with Western Europe, particularly the United Kingdom, that uh, North Atlantic Triangle, but very little attention to Asia What drew you to this study, and why do you think Canadian scholars have so long neglected this area? Well, I think what drew me to the study, to answer your first question, was personal experience. That After my undergraduate studies at McGill, um, I went to uh, teach in Japan. I taught English and Russian there, so I got to know Japanese culture, Japanese society, and history. And then when I went on with my studies uh, onto the doctorate, I realized how Eurocentric our history really is especially with regard to diplomatic relations. And it's true that our main uh, partners were Britain and the United States. Most of our trade was with them. Uh, there are uh, cultural ties, etc., political ties. But yet I try to show in, in my two books that um, the relations with Asia were also important uh, on, on other levels, that when you look at Canada's relations with Asia, you can't just remain at the level of what I call high politics. In other words, diplomatic relations, that it's a more um, holistic relation, relationship that includes not only political and diplomatic relations, but also uh, trade and economic relations, person-to-person relations. I look at missionaries, educators, etc. So when we look at Asia, it's actually is a much more rounded picture of um, Canadians involved in a region that, um, that few Canadians at home had little direct experience of. And I think that creates a very interesting dynamic, that we see it as an important region, but it's a region that most Canadians didn't know personally. Okay, then. Let's talk a little bit about, first, uh, the People's Republic of China and the uh, history of Canada's relations with China before it became the People's Republic. I note that you're... Uh, time span for this book is very interesting. And I should mention to our audience that we're now talking about John's book called Chasing the Dragon in Shanghai, Canada's Early Relations with China, 1858 to 1952, published by UBC Press in 2011. So why did you start in 1858? And why did you, uh, you know, particularly given that that's almost 10 years before Confederation. And second of all, that you actually end the book four or three years after the People's Republic of China uh, is actually established. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I remember at the time talking to scholars in the field and who were surprised that there were any relations between Canada and China before 1970. I mean, we think of Pierre Trudeau and that momentous uh, 
decision to go and to China recognize the People's Republic of China. I started in 1858 because that's when Lord Elgin um, left. He had been Governor General uh, here in Montreal, in Canada, where he faced uh, an uprising, and we burnt uh, British merchants burnt down the Parliament buildings here. Uh, and he went to be a British High Commissioner to China, based in Shanghai. So I thought that was an interesting connection, because in Shanghai also uh, had to deal with British mercantile interest there. Uh, and I, although um, Lord Elgin was not a Canadian, he was a British appointee who spent time here, I thought that was a very interesting uh, opening. Um, you can go back even further. I have a colleague in the University of uh, Sherbrooke who traces the beginning of relations to the 1600s, to the Jesuit missionaries who operated a trade in ginseng route between uh, Asia and, and Canada. But I thought the arrival of Lord Elgin was an interesting starting point because after that point, of course, many Canadian missionaries uh, go to China and China becomes a very important point for them. The end date of 1952 is when the last Canadians leave Shanghai. Um, they don't fare well under the communists. They survive for a few years, but by 1952, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, they've left Shanghai and China. The ones who stayed were, were persecuted. So tell us a little bit about that early history, uh, pre-Confederation, post-Confederation, uh, and can you tell us whether Canada had any independent relations with China, given the fact that it was, in fact, a colony um, of Great Britain at the time? That's a good point. The relations weren't independent. We Canada at that time operated within the British imperial network, and I think that's very important to, to show, um, up until World War I. So Canada actually, there's a, there's a stream of thought within Canadian history that shows imperialism as a form of Canadian nationalism. In other words, Canadian nationalists used imperialism to promote Canadian interests. So uh, we can look at that with things like Canadian Pacific, Railways, which offered an all-red route so that you could go from Britain to China without leaving British territory. You could travel on a, a Canadian Pacific steamship, uh, arrive in Canada, cross on the CP Railway, get on another CP uh, ocean liner, the so-called White Empress, Empresses, and wind up in Yokohama or Shanghai. So we, in a way, we entered into Asia on British coattails. And these Canadians know that. Uh, we have. A, I talk about Mackenzie King, who as a, a, a kind of fairly junior minister in 1909 went to Shanghai as part of the International Opium Conference. Mackenzie King, who saw himself as operating within the British Imperial Network, but very much realized the importance of the fact of him being the first Canadian official representative in Shanghai. And he arrived in 1909 for the Opium Conference, just as the Department of External Affairs was being created. And he saw that as a momentous development as well. So that early colonial period, I think, is important because it shows Canadians going to Asia through British auspices, but representing what's still a colony, but what is becoming quickly a nation and a growing national consciousness. And some sympathy uh, with the evolving Chinese nationalism at that time. So your book has really two faces to it. On the one hand, it provides a diamond-hard focus on Shanghai, but on the other, it tells us the diplomatic history of Canada and China overall. Why tell us this history through the perspective of Shanghai? What was so significant about Shanghai? 
Well, first of all, I've always been fascinated by Shanghai as a cosmopolitan city that's returning to that status uh, now. Um, Shanghai, in many ways, well, as we know, was the gateway to China, but it was unlike China on many other levels. Um, it had the, it had the uh, largest uh, international presence, uh, so we can see why Canadians got established there. And there was a certain a degree of myth-making about Shanghai. Shanghai, in that sense, represented the best of China for some and the worst of China for others. It was the gateway to um, unlimited potential for, for Canadian business people and traders of this limitless Chinese market, that if you could set up shop in Shanghai, you would uh, make it rich. Uh, for missionaries, it was the gateway to uh, conversions of millions of Chinese, and we saw that on the part of Catholic and Protestant missionaries. Uh, but it also represented um, kind of the worst side of China, too, of the corruption of the Chinese system, of decadence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I just found China, Canada's relations with China, because it was a region that many Canadians had not experienced firsthand, uh, they were really subject to a lot of myth-making about China, and Shanghai seemed to represent those myths. Well, what about the fact that Europeans had, and uh, North Americans for that matter, all had what I would call concessions in, mm -hmm. in Shanghai? That's right, yeah. The city was organized very mm -hmm. differently. To what extent did that make Shanghai special in terms of uh, various countries, not just Canada's relationship with China in that earlier period? Well, it wasn't the only treaty port. There were others, but it was the largest and most significant one. And treaty ports were offered, uh, were um, gained from the Chinese after the Opium Wars as kind of a, a foreign foothold in China. And so there were five major ones uh, in which these foreign powers had concessions. British, American, uh, French, and other powers, Russian in some places, like Tianjin. And in these concessions, they were not subject to Chinese law. They were subject to their own laws. And so it was considered a foreign a sign of foreign privilege, but to the Chinese nationalists, certainly an insult to them, that Chinese citizens were not truly citizens in their own country, that when they went to these foreign concessions, they were in China, but not in China. And, and I take it that this was very much connected to the, what I'll call the nationalist uh, backlash against yes. the old imperial system. Very much so. And this, this relates to more recent debates that we see between Canada and China. Um, and, and something that Canadians and many Westerners forget. Uh, when I talk to my Chinese colleagues, they often talk about um, national humiliation. And uh, it's something that I can't overestimate. Um, Chinese decision makers are still obsessed with this question of a period, i.e. pre-1950, where the Chinese were treated as second-class citizens in their own country. In these foreign concessions, go back to the Opium Wars, uh, uh, etc. So... The fact that Canadians were part of this concession uh, treaty port system uh, tainted us as well as, as colonials. And it's something that some Canadians in Shanghai uh, took pains to distance themselves from and actually side with the Chinese nationalists against the imperialists. And I take it that we are identified with that because after the First World War, Canada became an independent actor That's in right. terms of foreign relations, yeah. including its dealings with the concession, is that correct? That's right. The concessions are not officially abolished in Shanghai till World War II, so fairly late. But even before that, we have some Canadian missionaries and business people siding with Chinese nationalists 
um, and promoting these nationalist aspirations. I even uh, came across one file or letter from a uh, French-Canadian missionary who saw some Chinese nationalists protesting, and the Chinese nationalists were carrying a banner saying, English, go home. And this French-Canadian nationalist felt quite at home. He said that's something that he might have thought for, for Quebec as well. <laughs> English, go home. So he said he, he felt like he found some kindred spirits in uh, these Chinese nationalists. So that's interesting to see as well. Well, let's now turn to Japan, and your book on Japan is entitled The Dominion and the Rising Sun, Canada Encounters Japan, 1929-1941, to published again by UBC Press in 2004. Clearly, you pick this time period to coincide with the expansion of Japan as an imperial power, uh, the years of the 1930s and uh, the, all of the difficulties in terms of the global order at that time, and then eventually uh, Canada's entry into the war against uh, the Japanese Empire. Can you talk about Canada's desire to have diplomatic relations in this early period? I was quite surprised at how keen so many Canadians were, very influential Canadians, to establish a, a very good relationship with Japan. It was seen at the time as more important than yes, relationship definitely. with China. Yeah, and that's something that burdened, that really saddled us in our relations with East Asia, that during this period of the 20s and 30s, in many ways, Canada had a preference to Japan over China, on trade, on immigration, um, diplomatic representation. And again, I go back to our friend Mackenzie King, because of course King, by this point, is Prime Minister of Canada, and he wants to set up these, what were called foreign legations. We weren't quite <laughs> autonomous enough to call them embassies under ambassadors. These were legations under ministers. And I think it's quite significant that King decided to set up our third legation in Tokyo in 1929 under um, Herbert Marler, who was our first minister to Japan, assisted by Hugh Keenly's side. And, and where were the first two legations? Uh, well, if you don't count um, Britain, because we don't have an embassy there, it's a high commission, uh, the United States and Paris, Washington and Paris. So this is very significant. This is significant. And it's often overlooked by historians that this is the site of our third legation. And so I begin the book with a very, uh, what I find to be a moving uh, flag-raising scene on Dominion Day 1929, where the Red Ensign, the Canadian flag at that time, was hoisted for the first time officially in Asia, in Tokyo. And by the end of the period, of course, we're at war with Japan in 1941. But at the beginning of this period, 1929, when the flag was raised, many Canadians saw Japan as an ally because through the Anglo-Japanese alliance, we were officially allies. And that's something that's very important to remember. So in that book, I trace, my original title was From Ally to Menace, and I'm tracing those changing perceptions of Canadians and the Canadian government towards Japan, moving from an ally of Canada's to a threat and a menace. And that takes place gradually over the 30s. And I was trying to pinpoint when actually the attitudes change. So when, when was the tipping point and why? Well, I conclude it depends if you're looking at trade, missionaries, etc. But clearly the Manchurian incident was a, was a turning point. Describe what happened and the reaction within Canada to it? Well, within a couple of years of establishing the legation in Tokyo the, uh, by Canada, the civilian authorities in Japan lose control, and the military comes to the fore. 
and they engineer a takeover of Manchuria. Happens very quickly. And of course, the question is, what's the Canadian government going to do about this? And keep in mind, as I said earlier, that Japan is an ally of Canada's. So it's taken up by the League of Nations, the predecessor to what's now the United Nations, and the countries are divided. And actually our representative to the League of Nations gives a speech that's highly complimentary to Japan, which the Japanese delegate thanks us for, but he's soon dismissed from his post. And even Canadian attitudes, uh, Canadians in Japan are divided on the issue. Uh, we see a lot of the Canadian conservative press pro-Japanese, viewing the Japanese as the British of Asia, who are going to impose order on the Chinese in Manchuria. And then the kind of left-wing liberal and internationalist press in Canada seeing this as an important test of the League of Nations and collective security. I saw this myself in the House of Commons debates, looking at them in the latter part of the 1930s. Um, and basically, you had people, uh, MPs like Tommy Douglas, trying to bring the Prime Minister to task mm -hmm. in terms of his lack of position on this issue, and other MPs defending uh, the Government of Canada's non-position, mm -hmm. as well as defending Japan at times. So there was great polarization there even was, within Canada. There was. And I, I focus in particular on, in, in my book on the sanctions campaign. So Japan doesn't stop with Manchuria. Japan continues to make inroads into China all through the 30s. Of course, the most horrific example is the rape of Nanjing in 1937. And there the Canadian reaction is pretty minimal in the Canadian press. Uh, we're mainly focused on foreigners in Nanjing. Uh, but by then, the sanctions campaign is in full force. So these are citizens groups in Canada, and I, I look at their petitions, who are out protesting, who want the Canadian government to impose sanctions on Japan. And the Canadian government won't do it. And the main reason is because our chief allies, Britain and the United States, are, are willing to criticize Japan but not to the point of imposing sanctions. Well, it's important to remember at this time that Japan already had an empire before its uh, expansion in the 1930s. It already controlled Korea. It already controlled Taiwan. And so the, uh, the issue of what Japan's intent was, I guess, uh, was probably questionable at the time that it, uh, the Manchurian incident, but not after that because obviously it continued to uh, expand. But what's interesting, though, in my research is that when you look at the Canadian conservative press, they're willing to give Japan the benefit of the doubt. In other words, they say, look, Japan, you've done a good job at developing Taiwan, Formosa, and Korea, and that's what Japan is going to do in Manchuria. Manchuria is seen as kind of the wild, not the wild west, but that Japan had too many people, surplus population, they had to expand, and that this was virgin land, and that the Japanese were going to build Manchuria into a modern uh, state with its own emperor, because don't forget they bring back Puyi, the last emperor of, of China, and they install him as a puppet emperor. And so the conservative press in Canada is willing to look at this as benign as British imperialism, that Japan has a civilizing um, mission in East Asia. And I, I, was quite I was quite surprised by that, to read that in the conservative press, but also among some missionaries, Anglican missionaries and others who have a pro-English bent, and again are going to view the Japanese in this light. We see it in, in Britain as well, that a certain sector of British opinion was uh, willing to side with, with Japan, that they saw Japan as exerting this civilizing role. 
So when did opinion clearly, clearly, the majority of opinion in Canada clearly shift to being anti-Japanese? By 1933, Japan has left the League of Nations. First nation to do so, it was a huge surprise. By around that time as well, we've got even the British um, military planning for attacks in Asia. By 1935, the Bennett government, by that point, uh, we've got a government under R.B. Bennett, has declared a trade war against Japan. And by around that time, we begin to look at the possibility of Japanese attacks on the western coast, the Pacific coast of Canada. So, John, when did opinion in Canada definitively change? That is, a real majority of Canadians, and particular decision makers within Canada, uh, come to realize that Japan was a threat to Canada's security. Well, in this divide between the imperialist, kind of conservative opinion in Canada and the liberal internationalist opinion, I would say after 1933, when Japan left the League, that was a momentous blow to the League. We've got um, British uh, defense planners uh, anticipating a war with Japan, starting to make uh, plans for that eventuality. By 1935, under the R.B. Bennett government, uh, conservatives are in power by this point. Uh, we have a, a trade war with Japan. In 1937, with Japan really expanding its grip into uh, China and the whole Nanking massacre, we have a conference in Brussels, and that's a failure. But I would say by the, the mid-30s, 1935 or so, there's fears on the West Coast, so in British Columbia, of possible Japanese attack. And they're, they're preparing for that possibility. Okay, so let's talk about your sources for both books a little bit. As you know, the Champlain Society was established in order to preserve and disseminate the documentary history of Canada. This is mainly in documents that are in the English or French language. You're dealing with the history of two countries that have very different languages. What were your sources? How did you reconstruct this history? Well, for my guiding chronology, I used the official government sources from the Canadian side. These books are both written from the Canadian perspective. I didn't consult Chinese or Japanese sources. Uh, I wish I had in some ways, we would have had a fuller picture. But I'm really looking at Canadian attitudes and policies toward Japan and China. So I use the official government sources to provide an overall timeline. But as I said earlier, our relationship with these two countries in Asia has always been more than just simply official government relations. Uh, this, these are areas where Canadian businesses were quite active and also uh, Canadian missionaries. Uh, We've got hundreds, uh, several hundred missionaries in both places. I think in the Japanese Empire, over 300. In China, something like 500. That's a significant presence of Canadians. And so I looked at those church archives. I looked at business archives uh, to provide a fuller picture of what was our involvement and what were, what were our perceptions of these two superpowers. Because uh, the, the, the missionaries and traders and government people who were there uh, sent reports back about a region that, as I said, few Canadians had visited personally. So I think they were very influential in kind of building a foundation for our relationship with East Asia, uh, and that still influenced relations today. You've taken your students in the past, when you were a professor in Saskatchewan, you uh, took them to Shanghai and Tokyo. 
I take it this is based in part upon your knowledge of both of those cities due to your professional historical work, but there are probably other reasons as well. Can you tell us why you did this and what you learned about the history and what your students learned about the history of this uh, relationship between Canada and uh, China and Japan? Well, um, when I was at the University of Regina, as, as you know, I was a professor and later president at Campion College. I team taught a course called the History of Tokyo and Shanghai. And with that professor that I worked with, we brought our students to China. We actually didn't go to Tokyo, unfortunately. I wish we had. But we went to China, to Beijing, Shanghai, and Yunnan province. And so the theme was the urban-rural divide in China. And as you may or may not know, and as your listeners may know, uh, the movement now from the hinterland or the countryside into the cities in China is the largest movement of people in human history. It's in the tens of millions. And so that was a particularly interesting point for our students to see that the Shanghai that they learned about in the classroom in Regina, uh, that Shanghai uh, cosmopolitan city that's an economic powerhouse before 1950, uh, that it was kind of frozen in time up until the economic reforms of Deng Xiaoping has now returned to that status. And so my students and I were amazed to see kind of the 21st century version of what we talked about in the history class and what I talk about in my book, that Shanghai has now regained its place as China's economic powerhouse and its window to the West. You've mentioned uh, missionaries a few times in this podcast. Uh, John, you're a Jesuit yourself. Uh, you are very familiar with the history of the church and various uh, churches generally in terms of their work in places like China and Japan. How important uh, was the missionary presence and how did that private involvement spill over into a public uh, relationship in terms of the formal diplomatic relationship between Canada and China on the one hand and Japan on the other. Well, in both of these books, I really highlight their role. I think that their role has been underestimated in history. Uh, as I said, there were large numbers of missionaries, both Catholic and Protestant, Anglophone and Francophone. And in many ways, they were the eyes and ears on the ground. They were the ones sending back reports of Japan, of China, but also of Japanese atrocities against Koreans, Japanese atrocities against Chinese, we have accounts of uh, Jesuits uh, protecting Chinese civilians in China during the war with Japan in the 30s. They had an extraordinary influence in their letters home, in their publications, in their speeches during their furloughs back in Canada. And uh, throughout their, their work, they were not shy to talk about Canadian immigration policy. Canadian uh, diplomatic relations, trade wars. Not that they intentionally waded into politics, but they would say, look, you know, Canada seems to be favoring Japan over China in the 1930s, and the Chinese aren't happy with this. Uh, and they would write letters to Ottawa, asking Ottawa to recognize China, uh, to, to set up a, a legation there as they did in Japan. Don't forget, for most of the interwar period, uh, Canada had a gentleman's agreement with Japan on immigration but due to the Chinese Immigration Act, had a virtual ban on Chinese immigration. So it really was a double standard. 
in the way we treated the two countries in Asia. And the missionaries were very much aware of that and tried to influence Ottawa in petitions, letters home, speeches, and through informal networks as well. The other uh, legacy of the missionaries I talk about is toward the end of my books, where I talk about what have often called the Mishkids. These are sons and daughters of missionaries who spoke fluent Japanese and Chinese, many of whom went on to work in external affairs. People like Hugh Keenleyside talk about many in the book uh, who, uh, well, E.H. Norman, Herbert Norman was a son of a missionary as well, uh, who uh, were well-versed in the languages, the culture, the history, and go on to be significant advisors um, in Canada on Canada's relations with East Asia. Well, John, as you know, we're now having a very difficult relationship with China. The last uh, year or so has uh, probably put Canada in its most difficult position vis-a-vis China since 1970. Uh, You also described the fact that Canada's approach to China has been largely reactive rather than proactive. Can you comment on our current situation, our current relationship with China, and what might happen uh, given this long history? Well, it's hard for historians to predict the future, as you know. Give it a try. (laughs) When I talk about Canadians being reactive, at that time, it was China always taking the initiative. China wanted Canadian representation in China. China wanted favored trade nation status uh, for trade. Uh, They wanted uh, a more equal immigration deal. And Canada kept balking at that. And part of the reason for that is because of the Anglo-American influence of Britain and the US. Part of it was nativist sentiment in British Columbia against the Chinese. Uh, And as I said, the whole legacy of treating Japan as an imperial ally. So in other words, in that period, it was China always pushing for closer relations and Canada being quite aloof. Now what we see is the opposite. Uh, China is now a superpower. It's not treated as a colony by the West. And Canada wants in. And China wisely realizes that it has other trading partners. It doesn't need Canada. And the asymmetry that was in the relationship is now going the other way. Um, that it's now China that is in the driver's seat in the relationship and is going to I don't want to say dictate, but it will establish relations with Canada on its own terms. Well, John, I want to thank you very much for this interview. Uh, I know that our listeners are going to find it fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig. John Meehan is the author of Chasing the Dragon in Shanghai, Canada's Early Relations with China, 1858-1952, to and The Dominion and the Rising Sun, Canada Encounters Japan, 1929-1941. to both published by UBC Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallton, and this podcast was recorded in Montreal on June 27, 2019. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst at Ryerson University in Toronto. We look forward to you joining us again.